Now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There is no more storied position in American political journalism than that of the chief political writer of the New York Times. Jonathan Martin holds that position today, and he's a guy who is steeped in both uh, the practice of politics and reporting on politics, which makes him someone uh, close to my own heart, coming from that same background. Jay Mart, as his friends know him, is also married to a fine journalist, Betsy Fisher Martin, formerly the producer of Meet the Press, and the uh, co-host of a great new podcast, Masters in Politics. I sat down with him in Manchester, New Hampshire, before the New Hampshire primary, to talk about this very, very interesting election year. Jonathan Martin, uh, you and I have a lot in common, starting with (laughs) the fact that we both were geeks about politics from an early age. Yep. Uh, and that led us into journalism. Right. So tell me how you got to be a geek at an early age. Well, I grew up in Northern Virginia, and my parents were both very passionate about politics and history, and I always kind of joked. What they do? My dad was a lobbyist. Mom was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of joke that um, – when we were growing up, instead of going to the Caribbean or going skiing for, for, for holidays, we went to battlefields and museums. And that was kind of our idea of <laughs> a really you know fulfilling spring break was, was going to Appomattox or, or um, Gettysburg. Um, so it was kind of inculcated in me at an early age um, that uh, this stuff is important. It's, it is enriching. And it's the kind of thing that I think you accept it or you reject it as a kid when you're exposed to it. And obviously, I accepted it. And uh, I've got great memories of every Tuesday in our house, Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News coming in in the mail. And then Thursday was Sports Illustrated. And so, you know, having those magazines, the Washington Post was our, our hometown paper. And, you know, having those magazines and that paper around – um, were hugely influential. And then you add that, the fact that my parents, my older brother, they all love this stuff too. And so I really didn't have much of a choice. And were you around campaigns? Yeah. So right after college, I worked uh, in Virginia on a gubernatorial campaign. And I had the best first job in politics. I was the driver. Mm-hmm. As that you is know, a good job. As, as you know, there, there is no better job because you're 22 years old. And you're exposed to the good, the bad, and the ugly. You really see how politics and campaigns work. You are behind the scenes. You see uh, the candidate interact with donors, with voters, with other staff. Uh, You overhear the phone conversations. And um, it is really – So one thing you learn is discretion. Yeah, discretion. But also you kind of learn how politics really works. No, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Talk to Reggie Love who traveled with – uh, Barack Obama all those years, uh, and it transformed his life. And doing what I do now, it has given me, uh, I think, uh, a real opportunity to sort of, shall I say, discern when it comes to what the campaigns are saying, 
what they're saying and what actually is happening behind the scenes because I kind of have an appreciation for the the true conversation taking place because you know at some you, point you heard them I was there yeah yeah well who who was your candidate he was a guy named Mark Early who was the AG in Virginia who ran and lost uh, thankfully for me in uh, 01. he lost to Mark Warner yeah, yeah I remember that race and that was right after nine eleven and there were two gov races in the country it was Jersey and Virginia uh, and so. Everything was transformed by by nine eleven, uh, and it basically froze the race. Um, but it it was wonderful. I I was ex- exposed to politics, my own home state, and uh, I learned learned a lot, including that I loved politics, but I didn't really want to do it for the rest of my life. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You, what, because you, you, you were you. What happened you was spun off the track at twenty two. Well, uh, what happened was. I was exposed to the, the sort of state capital press corps, which then was more robust uh, than it is now, sadly. But I just saw these guys who were having so much fun, and they were all a bunch of smart asses, and they had this sort of intellectual freedom to follow this stuff and engage in it like I wanted to, but do so from a standpoint of trying to figure out the how and the why. Yeah. And, you know, I was just not that passionate about one side or the other. I wasn't ideological. I was just sort of curious about how how this stuff all worked and kind of what it all meant. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I was looking at those guys trying to figure out how do I get over there and do that? And look, I didn't know from a hole in the wall how to do that. And so it actually took me four more years before I actually finally got a first gig in journalism. I, I wound up going to the Hill. I worked on the House campaign. And it was fine. I liked politics, but I just really wanted to write about it and talk about it and think about it. And finally, I got uh, an, an opportunity at the hotline. I had no connections. I had no in. Um, I was cold and calling. Was Chuck Todd there? I was cold calling. I was emailing. He was the editor. And I got a break from Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd uh, was then the editor of the hotline. Um, he had me over and said, basically, I can pay you peanuts. You're going to work your ass off. And I can't promise you anything more than that, but an opportunity. I said, it's sold. Yeah, so, the hotline was uh, like a forerunner of uh, Mike Allen's Politico. Uh, absolutely, uh, yeah. Stuff and it was a big deal. And we started actually when I was there uh, a blog because the hotline basically was a compendium of the the political news from around the country. And what Chuck started was some actual original reporting. And so it was neat because I was doing the sort of clip stuff in the morning, but then I had an opportunity to actually do my own reporting for this blog. And that led to doing some some stuff for the National Journal Magazine, which was then part of the hotline. And that got me some freelance opportunities elsewhere. And that, and that was it. So interesting because, um, you know, I was kids always ask me, like, how do you – become a political writer how do you yeah. get into politics and so on and i i always tell them like just do it <laughs> there's no yes. substitute for doing it you have right. to learn it that way yeah and also i read everything that you can get your hands on and what i tell students now is you 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 guys have a leg up on what i had because you have to have opportunity on your on your phones to every thing in the world that you can find online you can read every paper that you want on your phone every single day and And, um it's a problem actually because i can't get off my phone (laughs) i'm the same way but if you're if you're an aspiring journalist i mean you have so much access to information and you can make yourself really smart and informed by just reading stuff and learning that the world didn't start by the way in 2008 there was stuff leading up to this and if you know that and if you go into journalism with that kind of knowledge that's going to help you you uh you went on to the polit- uh, to politico and I did. you did very very well there now you're the lead 
political writer for the New York Times. And, you know, when I think of that role, you know, I and I think of Johnny Apple and I think of Adam Nagurney and I think of Tom Wicker and I yeah. think of yeah. some real giants in yeah. uh, journalism. I'm sure Nagurney would be surprised to hear me refer to him that way, <laughs> but I do. Uh, but... Uh, they all came up a different way. Yeah, they all came I up know. first as reporters, right. and you know, ch- right. like we all did when I was yeah. a kid, you know, chasing uh, ambulances and cops fire. and courts. Yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. And it, do you, do you feel like you missed something by not doing that? It's a great question. And first of all, I I'm humbled to um, think about the people who uh, came before me, and obviously Adam is a great friend and and mentor. Um, there are times where I do wish two things. A, that I had covered cops and courts, that I had done the kind of small town um, beat covering, you know, city council uh, and then sort of learning how to how to write that way. There are other times I kind of wish See, I, By the way, if you, had, if you had lived in Chicago as I did yeah. and started working there, cops and courts and politics are all the same. It's all the same place, the politicians right? politicians often end up in court, so... With cops. Yes. It's a one-stop shop. Yeah, exactly. So there are times where I kind of wish I had done that, and there are times where I wish I'd gone to journalism school. Um, and, you know, I probably could have come out a better writer. But then there are other times, David, where... You're a good writer. Come I, on, man. You're a great writer. Well, th- then there are other times where... I'm happy of how I started because I come back to what I said earlier, covering politics, it helps to have a more of a perspective as to what actually happens mm-hmm. in the car, in the room, right. when it's the candidate and the staff. And I think, you know, I was just trained differently. And um, in some ways it it offers better preparation and other ways it doesn't help as much. You know? Do you, uh, you said you're humbled by, by having this august position. Yeah. Uh, is it intimidating? Is it? Do you feel a, a burden of, for because you're the mm. paper of record yeah. uh, to and people look to it? I wrote a piece for the Times a few weeks ago. I couldn't believe the amount of right. response I got, even it in this time of piece, diluted, yeah. uh, diluted, uh, you know, circulation. It's still the biggest driver in the world. I mean, it, and uh, and then, by the way, that was a good story. Thank you. Uh, Remedy versus replica. Yes. Uh, the axe uh, trademark. Uh, line. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, it is humbling. And there are times when I stop and think about it, there is kind of a holy shit, if I can say that on this podcast. Yes, you can. Uh, this is one of those podcasts. A family podcast. Yes. Uh, um, but to, to tell you the truth, most of the time you're so busy and you're running mm-hmm. around that you don't sort of stop and think like that. You're just trying to get the story. Um, uh, but yeah, when you have kind of a, a moment to stop and reflect, it's uh, it's pretty neat. And I actually had one of those recently. Um, a friend of mine sent me the page one, and you'll love this, from the day after the 76 Iowa caucuses, where Carter came in second to... Mo Udall? No. No, wait, wait. Carter came, came in second to uh, No Choice. Oh, to, No Choice. Yeah. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, he was the first candidate. But yeah, I, I didn't recall him coming in. Coming in second, exactly. that's right. He was second to no choice. And that's what put the caucuses on the map, really. Yeah. He put the caucuses on Carter, the map. Absolutely. Jimmy Carter made that event right. what it is absolutely. today. And you know, traveling across the state, staying in private homes, um, he really created Iowa. Anyways, so a friend of mine sent me the page one from the next day 
um, after Carter wins the caucuses in, in 76. And you have to like zoom in like five times to find the story because back then the, the page ones had you know 11 stories, first of all, on the front, smaller type. And there's the headline below the fold, bottom right corner, one column headline, I mean, very, very small, um, totally overshadowed by all kinds of news of the day. Um, and you realize it wasn't that big of a deal then. But then you also stop and think, oh my gosh, uh, I just wrote the story about the Iowa caucuses that was on page one. Mm-hmm. And you look back and sort of see the history of that. Um, the other moment that I had that was kind of a um, my God moment was um, not long after I took the job, I visited Gettysburg and um, they had redone the visitor center there. It's fantastic now. Um, and we're walking around and we're looking at <clears throat> the museum uh, they have there and you see the New York Times account of the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. And you just stop and think for a second, I am now working at a place that covers the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. On page one the next day, they had this account of that speech. And that's a moment where you realize that you're um you're sort of part of this American history that, that's extraordinary. Now do they also have the online coverage of the Gettysburg Address or the first edition um was a a much hmm. shorter story actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so let me let be, me ask you this: be a telegraph this, didn't lead exactly. You um, uh, you are a student of history, so <laughs> put this campaign that you're covering right now in in context. What strikes you about this campaign uh, that uh, that that marks it as as different? Sure. Well, first, the two obvious points: uh, we have not had a non-politician who appears as formidable uh, as Donald Trump in a long time. Um, Probably since who? Wendell Wilkie, maybe. Potentially, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Eisenhower wasn't a politician. Yeah, but he was a public person. He was a statesman. That's right. Um, And so for him to finish second in Iowa and and potentially— I always love, by the way, that piece of history that— Roosevelt, when he was picking the commander for Normandy, understood that whoever he picked would likely be president of the United States someday because it was of such moment. So fascinating. Uh, So anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. And um, so Trump obviously has the potential to go a lot further than most non-politicians have in the history of this country. And he's not just a non-politician. He is somebody who is merging entertainment and politics in a way that we haven't seen in this country for a very long time. You know, in some ways, Trump, as modern of a figure as he is with, with his uh, incessant tweets and his kind of you know ubiquitous TV presence, uh, he's also a throwback to an era where in the 19th century yeah. – and before, as you know, politics was entertainment. Yeah. Um, there wasn't the NFL. There wasn't Major League Baseball. There wasn't reality TV. You know, people went to political debates and rallies and um, – You sat for hours. You know, torchlit yeah. parades. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that's what, that was the civic activity yeah. outside of the church. I mean, that's what you did in the community. Yeah. yeah. And so in some ways, sort of Trump bringing enter- entertainment and politics together recalls an earlier time in American politics. Um, although I don't think that, that – that, they had folks calling each other dummies at the, the uh, torch parade. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it seems a little coarser in some ways. Although those bit. were brutal campaigns back. They in were the tough campaigns. Century, but they also the language was, was more decorous. I also yeah. think the country was young, and there was a sense in these campaigns the stakes were very. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, large. Absolutely. You know? But um, and then obviously I, the second point is we have 
the possibility of the first female president running. And she ran, obviously, eight years ago in a campaign. I think you'll recall. I, re- I do that. <laughs> um, I do remember that. But the possibility of breaking the gender barrier in the presidency is extraordinary, too. So uh, let's, let's, let's take that side first, and then let's yeah. go back to Trump, because everybody always puts Trump first, and I think we ought to like, make him wait before we talk about him, because he's probably listening to this podcast. Have a seat, so, Donald. Yes, exactly. Someone has to say yeah. it. Cool your heels. So uh, why, why is there this uh, heated race or seemingly heated race. I mean, I have some doubts ultimately yeah. about where this whole thing goes after you leave right. New Hampshire. But Bernie Sanders has been a surprisingly strong right. candidate. Uh, is that because of Bernie? Is it because of Hillary? Or is it because of both? Uh, I would say it is some of C. And also I would present to you a new possibility, uh, D, which is the fact that the country is increasingly polarized and the two parties are increasingly polarized and the expectations in the base of both parties has become so outsized about what is possible in politics that you've got uh, obviously a, a radicalized you know, Republican Party, um, but you also have got the sort of heightened expectation on the left of what's possible in American politics. And I, I think because of that um, – there is frustration with what people see as the kind of timidity or the incrementalism of the establishment that Hillary re- reflects. And I think part of that's borne out with frustration that Obama couldn't get more done, even though he obviously did a lot. Um, and you add to that the fact that Hillary is seen as kind of the ultimate insider and the Clintons are seen as sort of calculating political figures. And then comes along that this that this figure who is totally liberated from calculated politics, who is, um, you know, somebody who uh, speaks bluntly about what he sees as the biggest crisis today in the American experience, and that's going to have some real appeal. Uh, Meaning least, the whole the flattening of wages, uh, income absolutely. inequality, and so on. And, yeah, income inequality, and uh, the fact that the, the rich are getting richer, and you know everybody else is is not pedaling faster. And yeah, faster. and so I think that he has kind of met the moment. I I, I did a story this summer when Bernie and Trump are both really coming on. I talked to a really smart historian. Uh, at Georgetown named Michael Kazin, um, who's written a lot about the history of the left. And he made a really good point to me. He said that if you look at the history of presidencies that were very ideologically ambitious, oftentimes they created groups that were even more uh, sort of assuming and expecting of uh, intense progress and action. The example he used was how JFK and LBGA created the new left because they they sort of gave the possibility of real progress. And so, you know, Tom Hayden and the Black Panthers come out of not a right-wing presidency. They come out of more of a, a liberal presidency. That's what created them. And the point Kaysen was making was that Black Lives Matter, for example, comes out of the Obama presidency because the Obama presidency has created the prospect of more action, uh, an expectation that, that much more is possible. I thought that was a really smart observation that these kind of movements don't just come out of sort of reaction to the opposition, but come out of the possibility uh, presented by your own sort of ideological it's interesting Bernie, Bernie himself is a product of the activism of the 60s. Uh, so there is a con- continuum there. Right. But, you know, the the thing is that 
I, I, you're so right that you have uh, uh, you have the right and the left both aggravated because uh, they feel like their representatives in Washington have been too uh, willing to compromise. That's right. But we live in a system that was sort of set up that way. Yeah. We've got a polarized country, right. and the system was set up to actually create gridlock, to right. make it difficult right. to do things. Um, so, you know, it's uh, uh, it's really sort of a, a, a challenging situation here because there is all of this pent-up energy, and the system itself is a break on on on. on Bold action. I think you talk about yeah. Obama. My feeling is that it's kind of remarkable that he got done as much as he did, given the polarity of the country and the nature of the system. And look, look how he did it for the most part. He did it in the first two years of his presidency when he had these Democrat, majorities. When he had Democratic majorities, and then once it's one the- of the ironies, you know, we 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 um, we when I was involved in that campaign. So much of it was about bringing Republicans mm-hmm. and Democrats together, and people so loved that vision that they delivered these huge Democratic majorities right. that that sort of led to more polarity, you know? Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And it's probably, you know, looking back, it, it's hard to conceive him doing the kind of things that he did without those, those Democratic majorities. Um you know, you just don't it's have... one of the reasons why he wanted to do health care in the first two years. Absolutely. Um, even though some of the, the folks around them were a bit more skeptical about that, uh, from what I understand. Yes. Um, not much. Guilty. Uh, Guilty. So um, uh, the country was designed around the idea of not giving anybody too much power. And so that that inherently does create gridlock. And that that very sort of constitutional fact of life has been exacerbated by the increasing tribalism of American politics. If you just walk around the Capitol these days, and I, you know, when I'm not on the campaign trail, I'm probably on the Capitol once, twice a month, because as you know, it's the best place in Washington to actually see people with, with no staff around them. Mm-hmm. You can just go up to the principals and talk to them. It's great. It's the last best sort of preserve in Washington to grab principals with, with, with no staff um, filtering you. And if you just walk around, you just sort of see the Democrats and the Republicans um, you know, there, there's just not much in the way of middle ground. Um, they just don't have a lot in common. Um, and you don't see a lot of crossover votes in a way that you, you would have years ago. And, you know, part of the Obama presidency has uh, sort of, you know, in- increased that purification of the, the two parties. Um, you know, you just don't have a lot of the red state members of Congress who are Democrats and you have fewer um, blue state Republicans. Um, and so the parties are just now you know, much more reflective of their primary constituency. And I say primary meaning like the primary election. Um, you know, they reflect the liberal base or the conservative base. And oftentimes that's who they're, they're thinking about, when, you know, when they vote. It used to be when, when those guys voted, they were, they were concerned about folks back home. Oftentimes now when they vote, they're thinking about what will the interest groups say about this vote who, who matter in my primary. Because at the end of the day, and this I think is, you know, it's a it's a truism, but we don't focus on it enough. Fundamentally, you know, politicians' uh, first rule is self-preservation. I right. mean, there are there. Right. I always say profiles encourages a slim right. volume for a reason. You know, I mean, most politicians yeah. prize their 
jobs first. Right. And so the things that threaten their jobs right. are the things they're going to be uh, attentive to. So the interest groups, the funders, the absolutely, and you know, increasingly now uh, the action in the House races and Senate races is in primaries. Um, and so, you know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, these guys are not thinking about the possibility of a general election because they got a safe seat. Um, that's more in the House than the Senate, but you see that sort of creep down the Senate too. Bernie Sanders, so Bernie, uh, in addition to tapping into this um, sort of zeitgeist that we talked about, um, are you su- surprised that he's performed as well? You know, on the Hill, he's yeah. he's yeah. not regarded as a rock star. But you go out here, when we had him at the University of Chicago, like 5,000 kids signed up in two hours. How, how did this happen? Right. Um, he's gone from uh, ideologue backbench senator to Bobby Kennedy. Um, I am surprised that he has um, he has been – uh, perceived uh, in a sort of rapturous way um, because he's not in the political world an unknown commodity, right? I mean, Bernie's been in, in Congress for 25 years. Everybody kind of knew Bernie um, <laughs> and kind of knew what he was passionate about and knew that he would give these sort of impassioned speeches. But seeing it translate out there has been a bit of a surprise. But I just think it speaks to the fact that young people especially are just so hungry for 140-proof, you know, unfiltered, raw political truth, or at least in their minds, political truth. And he brings it. And um, He's an authentic guy. Totally authentic guy. And he is what he is, you know. The hair is messed up. Yeah. He's not worried about his tailoring. Uh, he is what he is. He's my role model, actually. <laughs> But uh, but twenty uh, but, years. But he's kind of a throwback too, by the way. I think our friend Glenn Thrush wrote this. Uh, I can't recall, but in he's the political. He's sort of the, this like Debsian figure, right? Is like um, he thinks that like the way to approach politics is like I'm just going to give uh, an hour long speech and I'm going to really let it rip, right? Like that's sort of his approach. It's like a one a, a one pitch pitcher. All he has is a fastball. It's a really good fastball, but it's like. He recalls a day when these guys went went out to the stump and they just spoke for an hour and uh, they just dripping in sweat afterwards. And, and I they, think he may have actually seen Debs, right? Debs was <laughs> only a hundred years ago. And you can sort of like imagine Bernie going through the paper and looking for the section where like they printed the entire speech, you know, like like, <laughs> like back in the day, right? <laughs> uh, because that's kind of the world that he comes from. Is like you know powerful, persuasive oratory. You know? Yeah, he's also shown. Some self-effacing humor, and he's come around. Yeah, yeah he's, he's really he's, come around. So, what about Hillary as a performer? You know, Hillary is never going to be a great politician, and I think the folks around her know that. And they try to put her in positions that reflect her strengths, um, which is smart. Yeah, look, when she does the, the Anderson Cooper conversation, like she did in New Hampshire recently, that plays to her strengths. When she's standing up there next to Bill Clinton at the Harkin Steak Fry and a crowd of a couple thousand people, that ain't playing to her strength. Yeah, in fact, you know? I, I think in Iowa, the Iowa caucuses were interesting because they had her in small rooms. Yes, They smart. had her doing one-on-one kinds of encounters with potential caucus goers. And she's very effective in those, those settings. Much she's better. not effective as a stump speaker. No. She's not uh, an inspiring no. speaker. That was sort of a race of perspiration versus inspiration, really and was. she gr- and she ground out, you know, the tiniest of margins. So, how do you think this whole thing plays out? 
It's pretty straightforward to me that unless Bernie can fucking find a way to make inroads with non-white Democrats, he's going to have a problem over the long haul because the rest of the the Democratic primary does not look like Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, It's a Barack Obama party. It's not a Ben and Jerry's party. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately is a challenge for Senator Sanders um, unless he can find a way to make inroads with black and Hispanic Democrats. Uh, and I'm not sure that he can. But it was interesting the other we'll night in that Anderson Cooper town hall. He spent quite a bit of time on criminal justice issues, right. issues of uh, of racial disparity, right. and so on. He was he was not talking to New Hampshire. He was talking to South Carolina and other right more diverse states. But David, uh, uh, as you know, and in fact, you and I talked about this in June of last year when my colleague Pat Healy and I did a story. There's a history in the, the Democratic primary in this country of candidates on two very different tracks. And one of them is much more of the kind of latte liberal, shall we say, track of upscale or at least middle class white liberals who are passionate about issues like campaign finance reform, um, you know, matters of process that um, sort of impact the political system. And there's a, another track of Democrats who are much more concerned about basic daily life issues. Um, and Barack Obama was the first one who actually upended that that dynamic for reasons that we're very familiar with, because he was able to sort of fuse white liberals with black Democrats in a way that nobody else had previously. But that history, though, is very tough for Bernie to overcome. And it's the history of Gary Hart, of Paul Songus, of Howard Dean, of Bill Bradley, where they have, they have a hard time broadening the, their coalition beyond. Yeah, you know, beyond one interesting liberals. thing about the Iowa results, though, where he did very well in eastern Iowa, that struck in me. some of these white working class no, areas, no. and that 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 was a harbinger of something. It was, and you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I was looking at the map, and after election day, I love looking at the maps, and we have on the on New York Times website now fantastic color coded maps, county by county maps, so you can really dive into this stuff if you're a nerd. I was struck by how well he did in some of those counties on the Mississippi River. Yes. And I'm thinking of places like Scott County. Absolutely. And Muscatine. Yeah. Where, where Davenport and Muscatine yeah, are. Blue-collar river towns. Yes. And you know, the fact that he caught on there, well, there's, there's still a, a strong labor presence, or at least the, 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 the sort of history of a labor presence, to me, was very interesting. But again, you know, can he expand the coalition? I mean, that doesn't take him into uh, – into the black it doesn't and hispanic and that's going to be the challenge for him but that said that said he is raising astonishing amounts of money enough to go the whole route to june i if he wants to yeah if he wants to i mean to me the question is a can he make inroads with non-white communities and if he can this is going to be a hell of a race if he can't what does he do what's his what's his ultimate end game here he's lord knows he's got the money to stay until june does he run to try to beat her or does he basically use those resources to return to how he started, which is a, a message candidate, somebody mm-hmm. who wants to hold her accountable, get his get his worldview out there, use it as a vehicle to sort of try to talk about income inequality and a rigged And system. he has impacted on, on the party oh, and yeah. on her. I mean, when you, you heard her try and in that uh, same town hall setting in New Hampshire – really try to out-populist Bernie in some ways and talk about the fact that he didn't go far enough. He was only right. taking on the banks. She would take on all these other 
big entities, insurance companies, and yeah. So I mean, his impact, his impact is undeniable, clear. undeniable, and his money makes his his impact potentially lasting, and it raises the possibility in both parties of simultaneously draining primaries, where you've got money sustaining the candidates in either side, and a similar dynamic in both, in which each side is pushed to the ideological. Uh, extremes, you know, of their party, Bernie pushing Hillary to the left, and then Cruz, and to some extent, Trump pushing Rubio slash whoever else from the establishment stays in the race to the right. Here's my, uh, you know, this is not a partisan point. This is a clinical point, though, you know, uh, people may take it as a partisan point. I think the difference is that um, Bernie is not pushing Hillary in places that would jeopardize her in a general election. I think the Republican Party, uh, because the internal dynamics of the Republican Party, and we should shift over and talk about the Republicans, uh, creates a much more difficult situation for their nominees because to win win the nomination, you have to be ardently anti-choice. You have to... It's culture. uh, It's culture. Yes. Yeah, no, I... I, Oh, yeah, you know, gay rights. That's right. And the whole panoply of issues that... Right, Bernie pushes Hillary further left on economic issues for the most part. And I think... But I think the country itself may be... The one danger zone... Like the one danger zone for Hillary in the primary, I thought, is where she has actually run to Bernie's right, and that is on taxes. You know, Hillary has not taken the bait on middle-class tax increases. In fact, just the opposite. She's hitting him on that. And so that, to me, is the one economic piece where she actually could have been vulnerable for, uh, for the general... And she has not necessarily done so. No, look, there's no question about it that the, the Republican primary activity pushes them further right on culture. Um, and um, the Democratic primary activity pushes them further left on, on economics for the most part. Yeah. And that is a challenge for the Republicans because the country is changing and, demogra- and uh, demography matters. And it's going to be harder for them rhetorically to sort of move on from, from some of the things that have been said. I mean, they the did a report area. after the last election saying we've got to have more aggressive outreach to Hispanics, <laughs> to women and young people. So how's that working? The day that Sarah Palin endorsed Donald Trump, I, uh, I was thinking about the so-called autopsy, which yeah. came out after the, the 2012 race, talking about how the party can move forward. I mean, uh, you couldn't script a more opposite scenario yes. from from that from the that, autopsy yeah to, wasn't there a movie once called dead again yeah exactly I think that's it's uh, you know no i think it's a big problem for them but let's talk about yeah. them so donald trump uh he dominated the preseason right, right. and he's uh, a friend of yours right Did yes he, we're he, close yeah we we i actually do know donald trump and we've had an interesting kind of relationship over the years i met him when i was in the white house that's a story for another day and he was and i always say this he was he gave a hundred thousand dollars when i did my slash the stash thing shaved off my mustache for epilepsy research and i shamed donald trump into i challenged him i didn't shame him i challenged him on television to donate and he sent me a hundred thousand dollars don't don't come easily either no i know i know and i took it and i went to mark cuban and i said you can't let Donald yeah. Trump out, do you? you got a he gave me two hundred. There you go. So, so I've got the <laughs> I've got the reality show guys on my side here, but this reality show guy dominated the preseason yeah. completely. I know completely. Remarkable. I know uh, how and why did that happen, and how complicit was the media in all of that? 
there's no question that he made for incredible box office. And at some point, the temptation uh, became overwhelming to just have at it. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of after action papers and uh, stories about what exactly the, the, the media did uh, in the rise of Donald Trump. Um, I would say that the TV media was was more complicit because at a time where, you know, they're kind of trying to figure out their way, uh, he used his guaranteed eyeballs. That's not to say that he was not obviously good for, for traffic on print websites. Uh, he was. Um, but the, the ubiquitous presence on, on TV, you cannot argue that it, it didn't give him a real leg up. Um, the coverage was overwhelming. I mean, he had more than everybody else combined. Um, that said... You can't say it's all about the media. He had a message that people were, were responding yes, yes, to. Yes, he did. And look, he had a hell of a megaphone for it. But he wasn't just, you know, saying saying gibberish. I mean, some of his stuff. Well, some of it was gibberish. Was outlandish. Some of, was, some of it was gibberish. But his central points um, were basically um, a kind of economic, uh, you know, nationalism um, that looks like a lot of the sort of European far-right parties. Nativism. It's not cold. Anti-trade. Yeah, and there's an audience for that. There, there's no doubt about it. And if you infuse and, it— and he, and he presented it with such audacity and force. And, and let's be brutally honest, if you infuse that with racially provocative images, it's going to sell even better in some quarters. And right. he did. Yes. Um, you're talking about banning Muslims from coming to America uh, at a time where— you know, the country had just seen what fourteen people slaughtered in, in California. Um, had a real had a real response. I was in South Carolina the night that he announced that proposal. I talked to a lot of people, and you saw a lot of heads nodding. Not because you know they wanted to create some kind of a blanket Muslim ban, although some did, but just because they let's just do something, right? Let's just do something. We're scared, and look, he's talking about at least taking action. And um, it's sort of classic strongman politics, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so that has an audience. How big of an audience is it? It's not totally clear, but he's definitely got an audience. And by the way, what's fascinating, it's not really a right-wing audience in a lot of ways. I mean, at least culturally, they're not kind of movement conservatives. It's, it's much no, more his, of a, yeah, his, a disaffected his, the, audience. The, the, uh, the exit polls from yeah. Iowa were really interesting. And all the polling you see on him, you know, he does very well with moderates. Right. Which is kind of shocking. It is. But – you know, his audience is much more of a disaffected Perot-like audience that's, that's not been involved in politics. It's not the kind of, you know, county committee activist who licks envelopes every two years for their candidates on the ballot. It's somebody who's pissed off, who um, in some cases harbors racial resentment, who believes the system is really uh, corrupt and wants somebody to go there and blow it all up. But as we learned in Iowa, the the one thing they may not be are people who are going to come out and vote. Well, some of them obviously did, but it wasn't you know enough in Iowa. In part because Iowa culturally is a better state for a traditional. Well, did he make a mistake, Trump, by going in there at all? It seems like he got inveigled into he 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 so inflates himself and everything he's involved in that he right. went in, that he went in there and right. and sort of uh, suggested. That he he's a winner and he would win, but it the was Donald, never set up for him to win particularly. That sixty three percent evangelical oh vote in Iowa. The Donald does not do expectation setting well, 
because the very nature of the Donald is everything is outsized and great, the best, uh, the biggest. And it's hard to have that persona and then try to say, well, we're going to try to come in the, you know, the top three. It doesn't work that well. well. You're a political writer and not a, a psychologist, but uh-huh. having watched him, times, if, yeah. if he, uh, the, the, you got to do a little both. There's but a crossover. The, uh, do you think if he begins to lose races that uh, he will leave, leave the, the uh, campaign rather than have his popularity put up week after week for a vote? There does seem to be a scenario where if he's not winning, he doesn't go forward. I had a, a colleague make a very shrewd observation, and, and that is Donald Trump has never sounded more more like a politician than in the last couple of days after losing Iowa mm-hmm. because he was spinning. and Well, they never really thought I had a chance there. I was told not to go there, and it's not right. a good state for me. I was like, oh, my gosh, suddenly he's reading all the talking points, right, and trying to sort of uh, you know temper the expectations ex post facto. So, um, look, I think it was jarring for him. He doesn't like losing. If you watch that speech he gave in Iowa, his voice was subdued. Yes. He sounded like somebody who never expected to be standing there uh, being a loser. Well, that's a hit to the main engine for him, whose ho- his whole brand is winning. Winning. And then, and then you lose you know, when you expect to win. Uh, and it, I think it has been unpleasant for him. And if you look at his reaction since then, I think that's kind of revealed, right? He so, know what happened. So let's look forward in the, in the last couple of minutes yeah. we have here. Uh, you've got uh, Ted Cruz having won Iowa. He probably would have been gone if he had. I mean, it would have been very tough for him he if he had He would have stayed in for Iowa. a while, but it would have been harder, yeah. Right. Uh, you've got Marco Rubio, who did surprisingly well in yeah. Iowa, who seems to be making a play yeah. to be the so-called establishment candidate, even though he, he rejects won't claim the term. It. He won't claim it, right? Yes. I mean, he seems to want to ride every one of the horses, but uh, uh, how, how do you the see this thing The love that dare not forward? speak its name, David. Huh? The love that dare not speak its name. Mm-hmm. Establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Right? It's kind of exactly. the, it's kind of the, the, um, yes. the, the scarlet E, uh, yeah. right? But there's days. no doubt that 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 is what's happening is that the establishment is eyeing him. <laughs> oh, as the, of course. The last, he raised more money the from the last Lop. helicopter out of Saigon. <laughs> He's like grabbing the rotor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, look, he uh, he raised more money at the end of last year than any candidate in the race, more than Jeb from Washington lobbyist. He won't say he's the establishment candidate because that's bad odor in, in today's Republican Party. But, but, of course, he's the, the only acceptable candidate um, outside of Bush, Kasich, and Christie, who were all kind of riding on New Hampshire. Um, what Rubio has tried to do from the start of his campaign and is now is avoid the label and present himself as a unifier, someone who, who can kind of bridge those factions and put together kind of movement conservatives and the establishment. And um, to do that, you have to have kind of a bridge in both worlds, and that can stre- stretch your a foot in both worlds, rather, and that can kind of stretch your legs. Yeah, the question is, the question is, are those are those factions bridgeable? Well, he he did show in Iowa that he had the possibility to put it together. If you look at the exit data in Iowa, he was able to actually do fairly well among evangelicals. And if he can make inroads with the evangelical lane, so to speak, and then really consolidate, he the, was doing a lot of signifying in the last. He couple sure of was. Weeks there, yeah. He had an ad talking about Jesus Christ on the air in Iowa. Two mentions during the debate of Christianity. If he can bridge the evangelicals and the kind of somewhat conservatives, he'll be a formidable candidate. He's not going to get all the evangelicals, obviously, but if he can get some of them and really consolidate the somewhat conservatives. Um, so what does he have to do in New Hampshire? Formidable. 
I think he's got to beat Bush, Kasich, and Christie here. And in doing so, he will emphatically put out a statement that you know, he he's is, the guy. He's the establishment he's guy. He's the guy. And look, that might not stop at least one of them from going on to South Carolina. Bush has the resources Bush, Casey, to do it. Yeah. Right. But I think it, it'll send a, a pretty loud message, given the fact that Bush, Kasich, and Christie have sort of staked their campaigns here. And if he doesn't? The, the race goes on for a while, and it's, it's a much more, more muddled contest. I think New Hampshire— Maybe in, maybe to Trump's advantage, huh? if the larger the field. It's so true, David. I've been talking about this. It's much more in Trump's interest to be nicer to, to his rivals. He needs a fractured race. It's yeah. better for Trump to have a, a, a multi-candidate race. Yes. If he gets into a binary choice, it's harder for Trump because there's so many folks in the party who are who, who are opposed to him. Um, so New Hampshire, to me, could be the great clarifier. It could determine whether or not we've got a clean three-way race, Trump, Rubio, Cruz, reflecting kind of Blue-collar nationalism, traditional evangelical slash hard-right conservatism, and then this kind of hybrid of establishment with some evangelicals, but but, 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 but good, or, good enough for the other exactly for the other faction, or something more muddled where you've still got other candidates hanging on trying to get their slice. Mm-hmm. But Cruz and Trump are going to be with us for a while, absolutely, um, unless the scenario that, that you raised earlier. Coming about, which is that Trump loses and just you know doesn't want to go forward. But I think New Hampshire doesn't look like it's going to happen in New Hampshire. It doesn't. Right? I think New Hampshire is set up pretty well for, for um, Donald Trump. You drive around some blue collar neighborhoods in Nashua, you see a few Trump signs there. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a good state for him demographically. And again, you don't need fifty one; you get thirty one here. Right, that's probably a pretty good night. Um, so I think Trump stays in. And Cruz, my goodness, has yeah. got the resources to, to stay in for a long time. He'll be a good And fit. it's set up for him. South Carolina's yeah, South a good Carolina's state a, for him. You've got the SEC primary in March 1st, a lot of Texas. southern states. Yeah. yeah. So you've got, you got a solid state in South Carolina where he's set up to do well. And then March 1st, you got a lot of good states. So he's going to be around for a while. And um, you know he will have strong support. And he's a good debater. And once these debates become... Three, four people. Yeah, you know he's gonna have more opportunities to kind of stand out. So let's let's leave it here. What's gonna happen? <laughs> Who's gonna win this thing? So I'm not in the prediction business um, because uh, sure you are. Uh, no, I think it's the Sabato. I think the thing uh, Larry Sabato has this saying: "He who lives by the crystal ball winds up eating glass." <laughs> That's uh, good. It's a pretty good line, right? Yes. Um, but uh, two things I will say. I think Hillary still has to be considered the favorite to win the Democratic nomination. Yes. Structurally, she has an advantage. And if Bernie can't make inroads with non-white Democrats, it, it's hard to see a path for him uh, going forward. Um, and on the Republican side, uh, I have never seen a race where there was this much uncertainty and confusion. It's just, it's very hard to figure out. Um, uh, that said, if Rubio does emerge from New Hampshire as the dominant establishment candidate, and can make inroads with evangelicals, uh, I think he'll be potentially formidable. He will be, although he is yet to be tested fully uh, in this race. And, uh, Which is why I raised the, you know, the, the issue of those debates. Once we got three to four yeah. people on stage, um, the scrutiny will be much more be hot. Very hot. Very hot. And, and by the way, Trump has not really been, been tested no, he hasn't. in those no, debates. He's not. You know, in those debates either. Or, or by the way, 
by the media. I think that, you know, right. he hasn't been vetted in the way normal candidates are vetted. He's been treated as kind of a Curiosity. media sensation, yeah, you know. Right. So anyway, speaking of media sensations, you <laughs> are a podcast oh. sensation. But it's, I so appreciate you. Well, it's an there. honor to be on the Axe Files, <laughs> uh, the hottest thing out there in podcast. All right. With, 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 you read it just like with I With one exception, because yes. my wife's now a podcaster. Yes, yes your wife is a great podcaster. Love you, baby. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.